Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode sees us delve into that most durable of BBC IPs, Doctor Who, as we play the 1986 Make Your Own Adventure book, Doctor Who Search for the Doctor. This book was published by Seven House and written by David Martin with illustrations by Gail Bennett. Before we get into that, there's a little business to attend to. Firstly, I need to thank a new patron, someone who's gone to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom and pledged as little as a single English pound to support my nonsense. John Kirk, thank you very much for your support. It is deeply appreciated. All patrons receive, in addition to my undying gratitude, a whole bunch of gaming materials, including three game books and three complete role-playing games. Additionally, I'm currently in the middle of writing a new game book, and I'm documenting the process in detail in a series of Patreon posts. So if you want to find out how my particular sausage is made, there's a little added bonus for you right there. Okay, on with the show. We covered a modern Doctor Who gamebook a good while back, and while I've an occasional fondness for New Who, it's only the original series that I really love. When this book came out in 1986, the show was not in the best of health. Colin Baker was embarking on his second and final series as the Doctor, and the runtime of the series had been cut down to just 14 episodes. The glory days of John Pertwee and Tom Baker were long gone, and the show was in the midst of an identity crisis that would remain unresolved by the time of its cancellation a few years later. Colin Baker's acerbic performance alienated many long-term fans, and there was a real sense of the show just beginning to run out of steam. This makes for an inauspicious backdrop for a game book, but it's what we've got, and we'll just have to make the best of it. One interesting point in the book's favour is that it was written by experienced Doctor Who screenwriter David Martin. Now, Martin, alongside his writing partner Bob Baker, had contributed several popular elements to the show, most notably the robot dog K9 and the doomed antimatter time lord Omega. Spoiler, both of these characters will be appearing in this book, and K9 is featured on the front cover art, which I would charitably describe as being of its time. Still, it's nice to have a bit of spin-off material written by someone who knows the show as well as Martin did, and this gives me hope that the adventure will at least have an authentic flavour to it, even if it's maybe not the authentic flavour of Doctor Who's absolute heyday. I don't think there's actually anything more that needs to be said, so let's dive straight into Search for the Doctor. So, there's no system for this one. The Make Your Own Adventure series, closely resembling but being legally distinct from the Choose Your Own Adventure series, presumably to avoid uh, yet another slice of litigation from that notoriously litigious company. Uh, there's other titles in this series, including uh, Crisis in Space, The Garden of Evil, Race Against Time, The Dominators, and Doctor Who and the Space Pirates. And I feel like some of those might actually be drawing on specific episodes for the framework of their plot. Uh, Doctor Who and the Space Pirates. He's tangled with space pirates on a few occasions, uh, particularly with the pirate planet. And the Dominators, I seem to recall, was, I want to say, second Doctor story. So going way back into the 1960s. But the one we've got is Search for the Doctor. So let's see what this one feels like. 
One. The dinosaur swung its great scaly neck down to look at you. Twin ruby lasers scanned the plastic identity card the guard held out. Hurry up, diner, muttered the guard. Welcome, boomed a synthesized voice. Welcome to the Natural History Museum. Restaurant and restrooms to the right, hall of space to the left. Have a nice day. The guard led you straight on to the green baize door at the end of the entrance hall. Above it, a liquid light display read, Day 22, Year 2056, Time 0953. You went down several flights of worn stone steps. Everywhere there were crates of labelled exhibits. At last you came to a steel fire door and a spiral cast-iron staircase. The atmosphere was cool and dry. Your feet echoed on stone paving slabs and the light was underwater green. Quadrupeds, said the guard, leafing through his clipboard. Non-mammalian. Tucked away in a corner by the lift was a square of grey-flecked fibreglass. It was labelled Property of Sarah Jane Smith, not for exhibition. Friend of yours? asked the guard. No, she was a friend of the family. Well, said the guard, whatever it is, it's been here fifty years. Sign here, please. So began the greatest adventure of your life. So we've very much started in the midst of the action, in a way. Uh, I'm very intrigued already to find out what might be in this crate. Sarah Jane Smith, probably the greatest Doctor Who companion of all time by some metrics. Uh, she accompanied... Tom Baker on many adventures and had her own spin-off series and would come back for a further spin-off series in the New Who era, so that's nice as well. Slightly weirded out by the story being in the past tense. Usually in these things you write in the present tense and it's a great chance with a game book to bust out a tense that doesn't get as much love in literature. But here we're in past tense, and that always has a slightly distancing effect in terms of interactive fiction. Because by telling you that things have already happened, it reduces, I think, your ability to identify with the action as it's being described. Anyway, it took two porters to manhandle the crate into your hotel room. Two hours later, you were beginning to wonder whether Sarah Jane Smith was a friend of the family after all. There was, as far as you could see, absolutely no way into the crate. The grey-flecked fibreglass was as smooth and seamless as a pebble. You kicked the crate angrily. You stupid, idiotic waste of time and space. How did you know? said a gravelly voice. I apologise for the lack of gravel in my voice. You swung round. There, in the open doorway, hands in the pockets of the sort of shiny grey suit pop singers used to wear hundreds of years ago, stood a small, grinning figure. Although he was not much taller than you, there was something compact and athletic about him, like those pictures of acrobats in old books. His hair was black and close-cropped, and his features, you decided, were best described as amiably dishonest. But it was his clothes that took your eye, a narrow lapel suit... A pink shirt and boot-lace tie, fluorescent green socks and thick purplish crepe-soled shoes. The whole outfit, including the gold Indian's head ring on his little finger, looked as if it had been stolen from a costume museum. Mind if I come in? 
The voice, too, sounded like something from an old British movie. That door, you said pointedly, was locked. Yeah, I noticed that. How did you get in? The strange figure tapped the end of his nose and sniffed. Ways and means, he grinned. I heard you kicking and shouting and screaming, and I thought, hello, trouble. And in I come. Everything all right? Yes, you said. Who are you, anyway? Drax is the name, antiques is the game. Bric-a-brac, objet d'art, stuffed animals, you name it, I'll buy it. Don't know why I've decided to increasingly portray Drax as Boise out of Only Fools and Horses, but that seems to be the way we're going. Is that why you're dressed like that? you asked. Drax looked at himself thoughtfully. You might say that, yeah. He frowned and then grinned again. Anyway, nobody's perfect. He moved to the crate. His hands stroked the grey surface and he patted the top fondly as if it were a favourite pet. Long time since i seen one of these. Then something quite incredible happened. He squatted down, put a hand on each side of the crate and picked it up. He straightened and held the crate high above his head. Looking at the underneath, it had taken two hefty porters ten minutes to drag it from the lift. It's a good one and all, he said, settling it down gently on the carpet. How much do you want for it? What is it? you said. It's no use to you, is it? Not in this day and age. Drax paused and looked at the watch on his wrist. It was the only thing about him that was not antique. In the centre of the strip of bluish metal that circled his hairy wrist was a black rectangle. Pinpricks of light glinted in it. It was like a small square of clear night sky. What time is it exactly? Any idea? 12.18. Ta. Drac hesitated and for the first time looked sheepish. Haven't got the day and the year, have you? Only this old ticker's gone a bit dicky on me recently. It's 56, day 22. What 56? What do you mean, what 56? 2056, of course. Drax made a delicate stroking movement with his thumb on the bluish metal. Now that accounts for all kinds of hours, your father. Right, this crate. How much? What do you mean? I'll give you 25, no comebacks. 25 euros? Thousand, yeah. 25,000 euros for this crate. Twenty-seven and a half, then. Top whack. But you don't know what's in it. Neither do you. Or do you? Drax's eyes narrowed. I haven't the faintest idea. Good. Terrific. Is it a deal? Drax held out his hand. You looked at it and thought. Twenty-seven and a half thousand euros. More than most people earned in a year. Enough for a house, almost. Yours, and all for an old crate you couldn't open anyway. So we see from the uh, distant past of 1986, there was a justifiable degree of optimism that a European currency would get off the ground by 2056, and the unfathomably optimistic prediction that Britain would be using it as currency by 2056. As the British public have demonstrated, they'd rather barter using hunks of meat cut from their own bodies than submit 
to a continental structure of economic trade and mutual cooperation. Drax's hand moved closer. He smiled at you invitingly. Shake, said Drax. From his inside jacket pocket, he took out a pile of gold 5,000 euro plaques and offered them to you. 30 for cash. So I do vaguely remember Drax as being a character, a yeah, somewhat roguish Time Lord who teams up with the Fourth Doctor to take on a peril of some description, the absolute identity of which completely escapes me. But he's a uh, yeah, a morally dubious character, but I think his heart's in the right place. We've got a choice. Uh, we can take the money or refuse the offer. I think on this occasion we will refuse the offer because I am beyond tantalised by the prospect of what is in that crate. Drax's offer tempted you. Two things stopped you from accepting. The first was that if Sarah Jane Smith had left something to you in her will, she must have had a reason. It would be ungrateful, to say the least, not to find out what was inside the crate. The second consideration was curiosity. Why should Drax, a person you have never seen before, offer you so much money? And why was he so confused about time? He did not seem to know what century he was in, let alone what day it was. There was something else. Odd as he was, you found him quite likeable. He did not strike you as particularly trustworthy, but he was amusing. The next hour or so passed very quickly. Drax upped his offer to 50,000, then 100,000. The more he offered, the more determined you became not to give in. Finally, Drax sighed heavily. All right, he said, you win. What do you want? I want to know what's in the crate. I think you can open it. You wouldn't offer me all this money if you didn't. Smart kid, ain't ya? Open it then. If I do said Drax. Can we still do a deal? That depends. Stand on me. Depends on what? What's inside, of course, you say. And there's one other thing. You don't half want an arm and a leg, don't you? Tell you what I'll do. I'll open the crates, and if we can come to terms, I'll tell you a little story. A true story? Would I lie... You look into his wide open frank grey eyes. I expect so. Open the crate. Drax rubbed the tips of his fingers together. Then to your surprise he picked up the biggest hammer he could find and brought it down smartly on the Perspex not for exhibition label on top of the crate. The black plastic shattered and shards flew across the room. Subtle, innit? said Drax, picking away at the remaining bits of Perspex. He moved nearer. Underneath was a small keypad with five buttons, four close together and the fifth a little further apart. Go on then, said Drax. I expect old Sarah Jane set it up for you. Set up what? You know what this is, said Drax. It's a space crate. Oh. Well, to stop curious little fingers whiling away the monotony of deep space by nicking other people's valuables, they have these keypads. This one will be matched to your prints and your biorhythmic patterns. So you couldn't open it even if you'd bought it. Drax scratched the ends of his nose pensively. 
Well, there's ways and means, but it would be quicker if you just place your left hand on the buttons. You stretched out your hand and let the fingertips rest on the five buttons. A low humming sound and then the note changed, became higher, mosquito-like. Wisps of acrid smoke began to curl away from the rounded edges. Is this supposed to happen? The buttons were becoming uncomfortably hot. Heat sealed, innit? said Drax, only the elements warming up. There was a series of hisses and sputtering noises. Then, with a sharp crack, the four sides of the crate fell apart, leaving the lid rocking gently on top of a curious metallic shape. You lifted off the lid. It was roughly the size and shape of a medium-sized dog, but there the resemblance ended. Embossed on its flanks in old-fashioned computer lettering was the letter K and the figure 9, Propped between its ears, or tracking sensors, as you soon learned to call them, was a letter in Sarah Jane Smith's handwriting. You picked it up. It smelled faintly of honeysuckle. So this is um, definitely nearer the book end of the adventure game book spectrum. So yeah, I guess this episode is basically just me reading you a nice story. So I hope that passes muster as a way to past the time while you're doing whatever it is you're doing but yeah these are long old sections in fact i'm looking ahead and there's only actually 33 sections in the entire book so yeah strap in i guess this is to introduce k9 it is or rather he for k9 is i regret to say patterned after the male of the species a mobile self-powered computer to be exact, this is K9 Mark III, but the fate of the other two need not concern you. In addition, the computer facilities and the datacom probe which enables K9 to read other computer data banks, K9 is a sophisticated tracking device and communications vehicle. Because of the hazardous nature of the missions upon which K9 is normally engaged, he is equipped with a photon blaster, which can be set to stun, blast, or dematerialize. Once activated, K9 Mark III will recharge himself automatically from the nearest energy source. To activate, press the 11th key on the console for K and the 9th for 9. All that now remains is for me to wish you good luck, for you will not have been able to read this letter unless you were about to embark on an adventure fraught with risk and danger. Always remember, the rewards are as great as the risks you take. You may not know what you are going to do or where you are going to go. Don't worry. As soon as K9 is activated, he will be in touch with the nearest Gallifreyan information source. I am not allowed to say anything more, but no doubt you will find out as you go along. If you do meet the Doctor, please give him my love. Sarah Jane. While you were reading the letter, you were aware that Drax was giving K9 a closer examination. What you did not see was that Drax placed his ticker, as he called his curious wristwatch, against K9's datacom probe. A very high-pitched tone, more a sensation than a noise, made you look up. Drax snatched his ticker quickly away from K9. Just giving it the once-over? Well, everything looks in good nick, so if we're going to do a deal, let's get on with it. You did not reply. Instead, you walked over to K9 and touched the 11th and 9th keys on the console. K9 lifted his head and scanned first you and then Drax. Good afternoon, 
said a high, faintly pernickety voice. Pernickety is absolutely the right word to describe Canine's canonical vocal pattern. I am Canine. You are my new owner. In future, I shall address you as such. Is that acceptable? Perfectly, you said. Kindly answer in positive or negative modes. Yes, Canine, that is acceptable. Sorry about that. It is not necessary to apologise. You are not to be expected to be infallible. Canine wheeled forward, turned to the right and left, and then reversed. Motor circuits tested, he announced. Good afternoon, Drax. Long time no see, Canine, said Drax. Your information is being processed, said Canine. What information, you asked, and how do you two know each other? Well, that's a long story, isn't it, Canine? Information being processed, repeated Canine. Go on, you said to Drax. Well, they must have checked you out. They, you asked? Yeah, Drax nodded. Them. The people from this Gallifrey place. That's right. Well, I was at the Prydonian Academy with the Doctor. That's the geezer who built old Mark III here. But they slung me out. I was all right on the practical side, but the temporal theory done me in. My brain is in me hands, see? So I got a hold of this second-hand TARDIS and went into repairs and maintenance. The TARDIS? you asked. Canine's visual orientation circuits glowed red. Time and relative dimension in space, a form of transport. Anyway, said Drax, it broke down. In Brixton, wasn't it? Just down the road from here before they burned it all down. But that was last century, you said. Yeah, well, anyway, I was out of funds and I needed these special crystals for the hyperbolic laser drive. The only place that had them was this big place down by the river. They had these uh, security guards dressed up like playing cards. The Tower of London. That's it. They had a perfect set of these crystals, but they was all locked away. Well, that was no good to me. I had to have them, so I went in and I took them. You stole the crown jewels. No. Drax shook his head sadly. I got nicked. Got ten years in the scrubs. In prison. Rough old place. Anyway, I had to learn the language to survive. I mean, if you don't talk like them, see, you're in dead bother. Know what I mean? But that was a hundred years ago. I'm coming to that. So, there I was, doing me porridge, doing me nut, and the Doctor and K-9 here busted me out of the nick. So I owe him one, don't I? When I heard he was in Stuck, I sent the coordinates and I calmed down. Only trouble was, I'd set everything up for 1956 Los Angeles. All the gear, TARDIS the lot. And here we are in 21st century London. Drax shrugged. Easy mistake to make. You were still trying to take it all in when K-9 trundled back. Information processed, he reported. The Doctor is trapped in toroidal stasis. Location 35 degrees north, 117 degrees west. Area known as Mojave Desert. But that's in Southern California, you said. Information correct, said K-9. K-9 is, as you may already have noted, if you're not familiar with classic Doctor Who, a smug, insufferable, pompous windbag of a robot. We'd better get our skates on then, said Drax. 
Snaggy's canine, I've had a bit of trouble with the TARDIS. Last known position required, said canine. Drax looked crestfallen. It's on the hotel roof. Not my fault. Last time I was here, this place weren't built. On the way up to the roof, you learned more about Drax and the Doctor. Both were Time Lords. Both had been outlawed from their home planet of Gallifrey and classed as renegades by the High Council of the Time Lords. The Doctor had been pardoned after defeating Omega, the time engineer who created the possibility of time travel for the Time Lords. Drax, it appeared, was still on parole. On the roof stood a 1956 Cadillac Eldorado convertible, white with huge tail fins and massive chrome overriders known as Dagmars. It had an interior of shaggy black nylon fur, scarlet leather seats and a pearlized steering wheel. Airbrushed yellow and vermilion flames ran along either flank and, for a mascot, Drax had mounted a gold anodized phoenix rising from the transparent red perspex flames. The pink glitter finish personalised number plates bore the word TARDIS in white lettering. What do you think? said Drax proudly. Back in 1956 LA, no one would have given it a second look. Nice unobtrusive little motor. Now, I'm not so sure. Even K9 seemed taken aback. Then he rolled forward and extended his datacom probe. Suggest altering external appearance of TARDIS. I can't change it. The chameleon circuit's on the blink. So is the guidance system's computer. That's why I needed to get hold of you. If you can plug yourself in, we can use your circuitry and we can be away. Can I ask a question? You said. How are you going to drive it off the roof? Yeah, said Drax thoughtfully. How do we do that, K9? Negative, said K9. I know, you said. Drax and K9 turned to look at you. You could always hire a Skyrider crane. Oh, I knew you was a bright kid, said Drax. Give us a minute to change the gear. When he came back, he was wearing silvery space coveralls. Survival suit, he said. Now, where do I go? After Drax had left, K9 set about interfacing himself with the guidance systems computer. There was nothing for you to do, so you watched. At last, K9 reversed away from the Cadillac. All systems operational. Suggest dematerialisation and departure. Go, you mean? Affirmative. What about Drax? Drax has fulfilled his function. I have all the information required. Analysis indicates the Doctor has urgent priority. Drax no longer essential. So you want me to steal his TARDIS? Not steal, said K9. Borrow. So, uh, a three-way choice. Wow, exciting. Uh, so we can decide to do as K9 says and go without Drax. Or you can wait for Drax. Or if you want to see what has happened to the Doctor, that is an option too. I'm quite sick of doing the Drax voice. Uh, so I'm going to suggest that we go without him. I do think Drax is a fun character. But yeah, that much Cockney. Kind of hard work. When K9 was in the passenger seat, you reached forward and turned the key in the ignition switch. With a noise like a wounded elephant, the Cadillac began to dematerialise. That, too, is a cracking description of the noise a TARDIS makes. The surroundings began to shimmer, and suddenly the golden afternoon turned black. The next thing you know was that it had become much hotter, and the sun was directly overhead. 
The Cadillac took shape around you. Canine's tracking sensors turned slowly through 90 degrees. Where are we? Mojave Desert. 49 degrees Celsius. Humidity zero. You looked round. The Cadillac was sitting in the exact centre of a broad circle of tarmac. All around you, dispersed on similar circles of tarmac, were several Boeing B-52s, strategic long-range bombers of the late 20th century. The blinding light on their bare metal surfaces made them hard to look at. The heat, light and silence were absolute. We're on an airbase, you said. K-9 did not reply. Instead, his radio signal booster antenna raised itself vertical. You became aware of a high, thin screech approaching faster and faster, growing in volume until it sounded like thunder in your head. We are at the epicentre of a thermonuclear fusion test site, said K-9. Dematerialisation essential. But even as you reached for the ignition key, the missile arrived. In a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second, a fusion reaction 100 million degrees Celsius has wiped you and K-9 and the entire airbase off the face of the Earth. And it reads, more haste, less speed, try again from six. So it's nice that it's given you a little clue, should you need one, that you've made a terrible, terrible decision. This is quite a nice design feature, actually, uh, because... It, rather than funneling you directly back to the the one you came from, it's actually funneling you to the correct choice, allowing you to skip an element of the backtracking, which uh, I think is rather rather neat. I think it's a bit early to call it a day, so uh, following the diktat of the text, we will we will go to where we're supposed to go. I do have to say that that is one of the quickest deaths I think we've had in terms of number of decisions I actually got to make. That was the second decision by my reckoning. So, um, yeah, my ability to get myself killed remains absolutely unparalleled in the Annals of Adventure Gamebook material. When Drax came back, his face was flushed and he was sucking a peppermint. I met these two fellas in the park working on this Skyrider crane. I gave them a hand fixing it, and they'll be over in a couple of minutes. Drax ruffled your hair. Always nice to get something for nothing. Caution advised, owner, said K-9 in a low voice. Well, said Drax, you fixed up the old motor, K-9. Negative, said K-9. It is difficult to interface with a Model 40 in this condition. You looked closely at K-9, minutes before he had said all systems were checked and operational. What we gonna do then? I shall talk you down into materialisation. What, manually? Negative, said K-9. Verbally. The Skyrider crane wobbled unsteadily overhead. Drax and another red-faced man fixed the straps underneath the Cadillac. K-9 was already in position in the passenger seat. Drax climbed in and turned to you. This could be a bit dodgy, so we'll pick you up down below, all right? Caution, essential, said K-9 in the same low voice. You tried to argue with Drax, but neither he nor the other man would hear of it. The other man said it was something to do with insurance. You stood back and watched the Skyrider crane begin to lift the Cadillac off the roof and clear of the parapet. Drax leaned over the side of the Cadillac and waved to you. 
Goodbye, kid. Sorry about this, but it's canine I need, not you. So long. Before you could speak, you saw K-9's head tilt back and the photon blaster emerge from his snout. If you persist in this crude attempt at a hijack, I shall have no alternative but to blast your newfound friends and their crane out of the sky. Oh, come on, K-9, said Drax. We can't take kids. Negative, said K-9. Land this contraption at once. Drax was silent on the long drive out of London. He had been caught, and he knew it. You were rather pleased. Having K-9 around made you feel secure. You watched him interfacing with the onboard TARDIS computer. His tracking sensors revolved constantly, and his radio antenna shifted in position with each bend in the motorway. Apart from the huge truck trains, there was little ground traffic. Most people preferred to put their Skyriders on auto-destination and watch Holovision. When dusk came, the hordes of returning commuters looked like great swarms of fireflies, each one with its holovision image glowing in the cockpit. So people staring at their mobile phones on public transport predicted, predicted in 1986 by David Martin. Congratulations. It's good having K9 along. He's a really good choice because he can act as the muscle, which is a useful thing for a Doctor Who character to be able to do because obviously the doctor generally prefers to avoid doing his own fighting john pertwee being the notable exception thanks to his mastery of venusian aikido but yeah canine is is interesting because he can be both a kind of surrogate doctor and also the muscle thanks to his handy uh blaster so yeah a good choice for a companion for this adventure, I would say. K9 kept up his listening watch until you passed the vast juggernetic complex on Salisbury Plain. I have no idea what the word juggernetic means. I've done a Google for it because I like finding out about words. And the main result I can find is a book review of a James Blish book from 1973 in which the reviewer complains at some length about Blish's use of the word juggernetic, uh, which he takes to mean, from context, something to do with psionics, but complains that its actual meaning is completely opaque to him. So uh, if you have a better grasp on English than I and can tell me what precisely juggernetic means and from where it is derived, then please do let me know. Near Stonehenge, a plastic replica now, since the peace vandals had tried to steal it, K9 told Drax to turn off onto a cart track. Peace vandals. It's proper, proper right wing. <laughs> just, just coining his peace vandals. These, these peaceniks with their, their vandalism. Yeah. Yeah, that's a proper old man angry at cloud. A uh, bit of writing there from Martin. The track led down into a small wooded cleft. Stonehenge lay on one side, the forest of dishes and aerials on the other. Stop here, said K-9. Sorry, kid, said Drax. Silence, said K-9 sharply. Drax turned round and offered you his hand. What are you listening for, K-9? Omega said K-9. The juggernetic receivers have tracked interference from the black hole in the Veiled Nebula. 
Analysis indicates that Omega has again escaped from the realm of antimatter. Evidence confirms that the Doctor is trapped in toroidal stasis. Logic infers a link between the two. If Omega picks up our dematerialization tremor, he will be ready for us. We will be destroyed on materialization. So how are we going to get there? asked Drax. From here, replied K9. The signal can be modulated so that our dematerialization will be indistinguishable from juggernetic wave traffic. Clever, said Drax. If we sound like them, he won't know we're on our way. So where do we come in again? Amargosa Gigantic Complex. Oh, I get it. We modulate the signal again and come in under their rave traffic cover. Brilliant. Exactly, said K9. Where's this Amargosa place then? K9's visualization orientation circuits glowed a deeper red in the fading light. Death Valley. As Drax and K9 ran through their pre dematerialization checks, you watched the light fade from the sky. Just as K9 made his datacom probe connection to the TARDIS guidance system, you saw a small moth alight on the disk tip probe. The dematerialization process began before you could speak. Evening became hazy, then black night swept over you. The next thing you were aware of was K9's unusually agitated voice. Error! Computer guidance malfunction! Manual override essential! But it was too late. The TARDIS had already materialised. As K9 disconnected, the moth flew away unharmed. You were in the cargo bay of an Enterprise 21 space freighter, about to attempt re-entry after a satellite servicing trip. Now the freighter had an extra ton and a half of Cadillac on board. Panic lights and emergency sirens were flashing and sounding all over the 500-foot ship. You knew what would happen. The shallow glide down to base would become a death dive. And, oh, I lied earlier when I said that there was no system for this game because we are instructed that we need to roll two dice and score a six or above to stay in orbit. Uh, I should also mention that there is a picture of the Sky Crane hauling off uh, Drax's Cadillac TARDIS. And it is low-end fine. You can sort of see the back of your head, and it's another one of those that's doing a decent job of making the, uh, the, the figure a little bit androgynous. So it could be a boy or a girl, or an NB. And uh, you do appear to be shaking your fist at Drax, who's waving out of the Cadillac as it's being lifted by the Sky Crane. Anyway... Uh, so, exciting times. We have to roll some dice. If we don't get the right roll, we just die. So, uh, let's hope I roll well. I roll an 8. We're fine. From a game design point of view, this is pretty rubbish. Uh, it's essentially being rewarded for making a good decision by being told, test your luck or die. The extra weight had shifted the freighter's centre of gravity forward. Now the angle of entry was too steep. The nose cone began to glow white hot. The ceramic tiles of the heat shield started to flake off, whipping past like tracer to burn out in space. The craft shuddered from end to end under the pressure, and the roar of its increasing speed filled the hull. What do I do now? shouted Drax. Reverse, answered K9 calmly. 
He really is one of the most punchable robots I think I've ever seen. Drax switched on the engine and threw the Cadillac into reverse. With the dive angle increasing every moment, Drax thumped on the accelerator. Smoke and the acrid smell of burning rubber rose from the back wheels. Slowly but surely, the Cadillac clawed its way up the steep metal floor towards the rear of the cargo bay. How much further? shouted Drax. He turned to look. Shaken loose by the continual buffeting, a raft of fuel containers was sliding down towards you. Look out! you shouted. It was too late. The impact threw you and Drax and K-9 into a tangle of legs, arms and feet and robot parts. As you struggled for a handhold, you could feel the Cadillac sliding down the metal deck. Your hand closed round a metal lever somewhere underneath the dashboard. No! You heard Drax shout, Don't pull that! It's the master duty! It was the last thing you heard until you came round to the sound of waves lapping softly against the outer hull of the freighter. Waves? You looked at Drax. You could see he was thinking the same thing. Can you hear what I hear? Yes, it, it sounds like we're at sea. At the creek, more like. As Drax struggled into a sitting position, the muffled voice of Canine's voice came from the black shaggy pile. He was nose down in the carpet. You hauled him upright. The voice continued undisturbed. Water temperature 20 degrees Celsius. Air temperature 20 degrees Celsius. Humidity 90%. Pollen count. All right, Canine, said Drax. Never mind the weather forecast. Where are we? Difficult, said Canine. His sensors tracked this way and that. Location inexact, he said finally. How can that be? said Drax. We appear to be in an unstable temporal anomaly. Now transit or intersect of temporal and atemporal modes in which neither is permanently dominant but... I'm going outside to have a look, said Drax. I never could handle temporal theory. You coming, kid? The cargo bay doors opened and you climbed out into the top of the freighter's hull. A thick sea mist prevented you from seeing more than a few yards. Down below you could occasionally catch sight of the surface of the sea. It was translucent green with drifting patches of pale fern-like weed. Shoals of tiny fish flashed silver as they switched direction. Look out, murmured Drax. Three men in white space coveralls were walking along the top of the blistered hull. All carried weapons. You ready, canine? said Drax softly. Affirmative. Canine stood on top of the cargo lift, two feet below the deck. He trundled back into the shadows and elevated his photon blaster. Give him a clear field of fire, just in case, muttered Drax as the men came up to you. You could see their insignia now, and their names. Captain Evans, Navigator Grundy, Engineer Floyd. Sound like a folk trio. Morning, said Drax cheerfully. All three of them looked exhausted by their ordeal. The captain, a grim, lean-faced man with short greying hair, nodded. What are you doing on this vessel? Just passing through, said Drax. How did you get here? Uh, we sort of dropped in. You did, huh? You and how many others? Only the two of us. The navigator peered into the cargo bay. Some kind of crude automobile in there. Could be what caused us to dip out on re-entry. 
looks heavy enough. You hear that? said the captain. Oh, come on, said Drax. I wouldn't be joy-riding around in outer space, would I? Not in an open-top convertible. We was just on our way home, weren't we? Yes, you said. The captain looked hard at you. Then what happened? There was this big bang overhead, said Drax. The captain interrupted him and pointed his finger at you. You tell me. There was a bang like a clap of thunder. That's right, said Drax. And then everything went black and we found ourselves here, so we came up. That's all. Where are you from? London. England. The navigator came over to the captain. Stinks of burned rubber in there. Skid marks all the way up the deck. I don't know how the hell they got in there, but they're the ones who screwed us up. As their three weapons came to point at you and Drax, there was a triple flash of turquoise laser from the cargo lift, and all three weapons went spinning up in the air and over the side. The three astronauts were holding their wrists as K-9 tracked forward into the light. Father, aggression, inadvisable. What the hell? Profanity, likewise, said K-9. Since there is no explanation, it is useless to seek one. There is an explanation, you said. Everyone turned to look at you. When K-9 interfaced with dematerialization, a moth got trapped in the probe. When we arrived on board, it flew out again. I think it messed up the coordinates, so that instead of Armagosa, we ended up on board. And then when I accidentally pulled the master switch, well, this happened. No one spoke. Then the sun came out and the mist lifted. All around, as far as the eye could see, trapped in islands of weed on the warm green sea, lay a fantastic collection of vessels. Seventeenth-century galleons, four-masted barkentines, a New England clipper, all with their sails in rags, innumerable lifeboats, rusting freighters, a Viking galley, and biggest of them all, a nuclear-powered cruise liner from the early 21st century, its white upperworks still gleaming. The name was clearly visible on the stern, Atlantis. In between the ships, half-submerged in weeds, were dozens of aircraft, some with their wings or tail sections missing, but all still afloat on layers of thin, fern-like weed. Of human life, however, there was no sign. I feel like David Martin is taking the opportunity to throw in all kinds of things he would have liked to have put in a Doctor Who serial, but was told that the budget wouldn't stretch that far. When you looked down into the clear water, you saw why. There on the bottom, shoals of tiny black and silver fish swam through the rib cages of innumerable skeletons. Dolly cow, if this ain't the Bermuda Triangle, said the engineer. Drax scratched the lobe of his ear. There was me thinking it was the Great Sargas O.C. What do you reckon, K-9? Both are names for the same phenomena. We are in a segment of space-time which is unstable. Although in itself it appears to be unchanging, the segment shifts between any number of parallel temporal matrices or universes. When it appears in the universe of which the solar system is a part, those objects unfortunate enough to enter the segment find themselves unable to leave. Like flies in amber, they are permanently stuck. You mean we are in some kind of time trap? said the captain. Affirmative. The morning passed slowly. Everyone seemed preoccupied with their own thoughts. The three astronauts seemed to need to get away from each other. 
You wandered through the freighter, looking at the equipment and the controls. All this technology fouled up by one tiny moth. He wondered if it had escaped. Hey, Skip, will you come and look at this? It was the engineer. He was lying face down on the edge of the wing, looking into the water in the shadow. The other two crew members sauntered over. You ran after them for the same reason. It was something to do. When you reached them, all three were lying flat out on the wing, peering into the water. Is it? Sure as hell looks like it. There must be thousands of them down there. What is it? you asked the engineer. We're rich, kid, he said. Filthy, stinking, rich. They held onto your ankles as you looked under the wing. There, on the seabed, scattered amongst the sand, were thousands of gold coins. Further off, close to the fuselage, old cannon lay half-buried, and next to the weed-grown fluke of a submerged anchor, you could see a chest lying on its side, more gold spilling out of it. The three men were chattering like boys. I'm going to get me a sackful. Sure could do with a swim. Just look at that stuff. This whole piece of ocean must be thick with it. With one accord, the three men stripped off their overalls and dived in. You watched their pale shapes swim down to the bottom. Then, to your horror, the clear green water went black with millions of tiny fish. In an instant, the men were lost to sight. Swimming with amazing speed, millions and millions more of tiny black and silver shapes swarmed in and darted down into the silent melee. Soon, the surface was boiling with them. You lay on the wing, transfixed. Then, from out of the water came what appeared to be a gloved black and silver arm. It clutched for the edge of the wing, held it for a moment, and then slipped off. Every square inch of flesh was covered with wriggling black and silver shapes. It was the last you saw of any of the crew. Which is a great relief to me, as uh, trying to do that many voices, really hard work. There is an illustration of one of the crew being attacked by this horde of murderous fish. It's kind of cool and kind of terrible at the same time. It's got a demented energy to it, which I really like. It's genuinely quite spooky. But I actually had to count the number of fingers that was on one of the outstretched hands because even though there's five, it somehow contrives to look as though there's six fingers. I'm not sure how you even do that. It's almost like a, a weird optical illusion. But uh, yeah... I mean, as mixed bags go, I'll take it because it is, yeah, very, very effective on one level. And that's a proper horror bit as well, which I uh, do appreciate. You sat on the edge of the wing. Despite the heat, you found yourself shivering. Suddenly, it looked a very long way back to the safety of the fuselage. Suppose you slipped and fell. You tried to shout, but your mouth was dry. When you stood up, you could feel the muscles in your legs quivering. And you saw it. Lying half on, half off of the wing was one round gold coin. Sweat dripped from your face onto the hot ceramic surface. You tried to tell yourself that any minutes before you'd been running along the edge of the wing without a thought of falling. But now it was very different. Your hand reached out for the coin. It trembled 
and began to slide off. You grabbed for it, felt it solid in your hand, and then you too began to slip over the smooth surface towards the water. You could see the fish waiting. They had left a perfect circle of warm green water for you to fall into. You screamed, and suddenly Drax was hauling you up by the feet onto the safety of the wing. You stupid idiot, he growled, and then he stopped, shocked by the pallor of your skin and the look of terror in your eyes. Without a word, he picked you up in his arms and held you close until you had stopped shivering. Where are the crew, kid? Don't look, Drax. It was only when Drax laid you gently down in the back of the Cadillac that you realised you were still clutching the gold coin. You opened your clenched fist. The pale yellow metal felt pleasantly heavy in your hand. It had already cost three lives, and had it not been for Drax, it would have claimed yours. You shuddered at the memory and looked more closely at the coin. One side bore a woman's head. Her face stared directly at you, beautiful but terrifying. And then you saw that her hair was not hair, but snakes and sea serpents. You turned the coin over. It showed a Greek warrior and a sword and shield. I feel like there's an opportunity missed here to give the player the choice as to whether or not to go after the tempting, tempting gold coin lying on the edge of the wing. That would have been an ideal moment to ask us to make a decision, but it's still an effective sequence, don't get me wrong, I, I enjoyed it, uh, but this doesn't feel like someone with a tremendous grasp of the best way of going about writing game books. K9, fully recharged, sped over to you. You showed him the coin. It's Perseus and Medusa the Gorgon, you said, feeling rather proud of yourself. Affirmative, said K9. It is also something else. What do you mean? A means of escape. Drax crawled out from under the Cadillac. You showed him the coin. Make a nice little medallion, he observed. He told him what K-9 had said. Drax thought and then nodded his head. It could work. How, Drax? You work it out for yourself, he said. But what's Medusa got to do with us? I'll give you a clue. All those old stories are true, more or less, once you work out what they mean. You mean that idea about Greek gods really being astronauts? Something like that. Now, if you take Medusa as being this place, then being trapped forever is like being turned to stone forever, see? And we know about the snakes and the sea serpents, don't we? The fish. Right, now Perseus cracked it. He defeated Medusa. So can we. To find out how to escape, you have to solve this puzzle. What six-letter English word can the letters in Medusa be made to spell? Answer at the back of the book, which is kind at least. I'm not brilliant at anagrams, but I did eventually manage to work out that Medusa can be made to spell amused, assuming that I've got that right. Uh, so let's have a look at the back of the book and check. Yep, yeah, I'm right. So uh, that allows us to somehow go onward. Not a great game book design. It's not entirely clear how that relates to anything else. Still, anyway, onwards. While K9 ran through his computer program for the escape attempt, you helped Drax set up one of the satellite dishes at the end of the cargo bay. Thousands of complex mathematical equations flickered across K9's visual display unit. 
to escape from one form of unstable temporal anomaly, another even less stable temporal anomaly has to be created. Drax's explanation was much simpler. The satellite dish was the shield and K9's photon blaster was the sword. K9 set the blaster to its most powerful phase, dematerialize. Drax synchronized the TARDIS drive system to K9's blaster circuitry. If it works, says Drax, we shall cut loose in the first nanosecond and be on our way in the next. If it doesn't, well, we won't be around to find out. The Cadillac was positioned at the focal point of the satellite dish so that the full force of the blast would boost the power of the TARDIS dematerialization system. Ready? Affirmative. There was a sound like a whip crack, a brilliant sunburst of light, and then blackness. The end. So, uh, that's not the end of the book, but it is the end of the first chapter, because in a fit of absolute insanity, this book is written in chapters. And the next chapter takes us to the Doctor himself, which is quite exciting, but I won't be covering that today, because I've been recording for long enough, and I think we've got a nice flavour of this book, which I'm finding aggravating and charming in equal measure, I would say, at this early stage. I will go away and play through it on my own time and come back to you with some closing remarks in just a couple of seconds. Tatty bye. Okay, on closer inspection, the adventure was indeed over. There's actually only one way out of the first chapter, and it's to completely ignore the proffered adventure with Drax in favour of jumping straight to chapter 2 and finding out what happened to the Doctor. There's literally no way that setting off with Drax and K9 can lead to a good outcome, which is, objectively, terrible design. I don't think I've ever come across a book where the right answer is to refuse the call to adventure in favour of seeing what someone else is up to. It's like if Luke had decided to stay on Tatooine in Star Wars and the film had just carried on without him, occasionally cutting back to him doing farming stuff, as if to tell the audience that people like them don't get to go on adventures and that's a good thing. The worst thing you can do to a character in a game book is to tell them they don't matter, that they are powerless to influence the world because, unlike in traditional media, you are delivering that message directly to the player as well because of how strongly they're encouraged by the format to identify with the protagonist. That's not to say that you can't create situations where the right thing to do is remain passive. Passivity itself can be fine, although I'd argue it should be used sparingly. Remaining quiet while you look for an opportunity to escape from some guards who are taking you to your execution, that's fine, for example. Most players won't have a problem with the idea that you need to pick your moment to act with care. Remaining quiet so that someone else can rescue you from guards, that's less fine. Even then, it's not always a bad thing. If the player knows that rescue might be at hand because they have some prior knowledge of the situation, they know something the guards don't, and that's empowering as well, albeit in a more subtle way. What really sticks in the craw is being turned into a spectator so that you can look on in awe and amazement at a character the writer clearly prefers to you. This right here might be the single worst design decision I've ever seen in a game book. And this many episodes in, that's kind of impressive. Turning the viewpoint character 
into a mere cipher so the author can get back to writing the people that he actually cares about. It's a shame because there's no reason the story couldn't have given you the agency to go on a little adventure and then changed viewpoint to the Doctor. Starting in the middle of the story and flashing back to fill in the backstory is a sophisticated technique to attempt in a game book. And it's beyond frustrating to see what is, theoretically, a well-executed twist being wedded to the worst possible design choice. And it leads on to a bigger question, which is one that bedevils any adaptation of beloved source material helmed by a single charismatic character. On the one hand, you need to feature that character because that's the draw, that's what people are paying their money for. On the other hand, I'm not sure that you can make that character the lead because I don't think most people actually want to play as the lead because part of what makes characters like the Doctor attractive is their alienness and their unreachability and the fact that they are mentally so far beyond ordinary mortal limits. If you can make bad decisions as the Doctor and thus get them killed, that tarnishes the image of the Doctor that you have in your head. Suddenly the Doctor has become intensely fallible, not in an exciting and dramatic way, but in the way that you are, I are fallible, which is generally much less interesting. I would submit that most people don't want to become the Doctor. They want to have the experience of hanging out with them and making friends with them. Okay, in this case we're talking about the sixth Doctor, so maybe that doesn't entirely work, but I feel the principle is sound. And it raises an intriguing problem. How do you balance the sense of agency that is central to the gamebook experience with the natural desire of the player to see the Doctor doing the Doctor's stuff? How do you allow the player to shape the behaviour of a beloved character without losing some of that mystique? It's a hard thing to address. The last Doctor Who book we covered managed to do a fairly decent job by virtue of having the Doctor ask your opinion on things at points, but I think there's probably a slightly more interesting solution out there. The key is to make sure that the only choices you allow the player to make on behalf of the Doctor have options that are equally believable things that the Doctor might do. So the question might be, should the Doctor try and destroy the Cyberman Doomsday Machine by reversing the polarity of the neutron flow or overloading the central power unit? That's a good example. The Doctor might do either of those things in the TV show. And if you take this approach, they will always behave in a manner consistent with the Doctor. But you can write it so that each option leads to a dilemma that can be influenced by the viewpoint character. Perhaps if you try and reverse the neutron flow, a Cyberman attacks the Doctor and you must intervene to rescue them. Whereas in the other option, the power overload threatens to run out of control and you must search for the override switch while the Doctor struggles to contain the reaction. These are very much tropes from the TV show and they allow you to have that sense of hanging out with the Doctor and having them do cool stuff while making you more than merely a simple bystander applauding whenever the Doctor does something particularly clever. And I think you want to be very careful about how the story ends as well in terms of multiple endings and bad endings. I think most people will feel that endings which involve the death of the Doctor or the destruction of the planet 
are going to ring hollow. The thing about heroes is that they do always save the day. If you end up with the Doctor getting gunned down by Daleks, that's going to feel wrong on some atavistic level, because you know that that's not something that's going to happen in the TV show. Or if it does, it's going to lead to regeneration rather than the end of the story. The Time Lord role-playing game codifies this very nicely by having a rule whereby the monsters will always start off targeting the least interesting person present and then work their way up the food chain. Nameless soldiers will be gunned down by Daleks before minor NPCs and they will be gunned down before major NPCs. It's only if things go catastrophically wrong that they will eventually start shooting directly at the Doctor and their companions. And I love rules like this, which systematise elements of the fictional universe. One of the biggest problems with the open game licence that Wizards of the Coast introduced and then recently tried to dismantle was that for a while at least, it felt like every big RPG release was using a variant of it. And sometimes that's fine, but for some intellectual properties, it just wasn't the right approach to take. There were so many games that I saw that were D20 based, that would have benefited more from a bespoke system designed to capture the specific experience they were trying to model. All of which is to say that Search for the Doctor does not do a good job of systematising the experience of being a Doctor Who companion, either through the mechanics or through the story. Let's look at the mechanics such as they are, because Martin is very definitely not a gamebook designer, he grasps that you can use dice to randomly select outcomes and that rolling higher is intuitively better than rolling lower, but that's the limit of his knowledge. The book is a series of increasingly lengthy passages punctuated by decisions either made by the player or by the dice with the wrong outcome usually leading to the immediate end of the adventure. The puzzles, such as they are, are barely linked to the narrative but at least Martin provides the answers at the end of the book, and that's a quality of life upgrade on most game books. The dice rolls are often about waiting for things for a random amount of time. Usually you'll roll two dice and that will convert to a number of seconds or minutes that pass. Wait too long at the whim of the dice gods and you will die. There's one I want to call out specifically though, in one of the most bizarre interludes in the story, you end up being reverse-aged until you cease to exist, which paradoxically allows you to escape from a dimensional trap by being reborn in the real world. You then have to roll dice until you roll a total equal to your own, as in to your own literal age in the real world, and it's clear that this rudimentary minigame represents you waiting until you've aged back to the same point you were at at the start of the adventure. You're just hanging out in some non-specified manner for however many years it takes. It's truly ludicrous. There is one good idea that I want to highlight, which is that there's some built-in sausagey finger bookmarks. The text will generally instruct you to go back to a previous section rather than dumping you back to the beginning of the adventure, and that's a neat concept, especially for a book aimed at younger readers. I think this book would have been even more of a chore to read had he not made this decision, and it's something I'm tempted to try and incorporate into a future project. I think it's an addition you want to be careful of overusing, because it does reduce the sense of jeopardy, 
But I think there's a few good use cases, even in more traditional, dangerous, role-playing, influenced adventure game books. Specifically, mazes. If you write a maze, it would be quite fun to give the player the option to go back to the start of the maze at certain points. You'd have to be careful to construct the maze in such a way that doing it several times didn't have surreal implications for cause and effect and reincarnation, but if you designed a trap, puzzle and secret door-filled environment, I think it would be fun for the player to be able to grind that section until they find the blue jewel or succumb to its dangers. Forest of Doom had a very basic version of this, where you could restart the adventure if you hadn't found both pieces of the Dwarven Hammer, but it felt odd having a situation where you could encounter the same creatures you'd already killed once. With an incredibly rudimentary structure and very few actually branching narratives, this book does feel underbaked. There are a few discrete sections, since the whole bit about being caught in the Bermuda Triangle is a blind alley, but with such basic structure, the book has to live or die on the quality of the writing. And the first thing is that writing in the past tense is a mistake, especially since all the decisions are given in the present tense. I'm not saying you couldn't write a game book in the past tense, but I think it would have to be something very special to be worth the downside cost to immersion, because that downside cost to immersion is very strong. It's not difficult to understand that presenting events in a manner that suggests they have already happened is a problem for a medium where the goal is to make the player feel like they can control the story. If I was going to use the past tense at all, I think I'd do it as a flashback within the main story, perhaps a vision of something that happened a long time ago. Even then, it's something I'd want to use sparingly. The right writer can break any rule, but I think you'd have to be trying something very experimental in order to break the present tense rule for any length of time, because the downside is just too big. I don't believe in creative absolutes, but writing game books in the present tense is probably the thing I've come across which is the closest to an unbreakable rule of the format. Otherwise, the writing is very hit and miss. Game books are, by their very nature, event-driven narratives. Stuff needs to happen in order to present opportunities for the player to make decisions. The problem, as I see it, is that the best stories in other mediums are often about what happens in between the stuff happening and how people react emotionally to the stuff that has happened. I don't remember many of the fight scenes in Buffy and Angel, but I do remember a lot of the concepts and a lot of the funny lines. It's notable that Search for the Doctor is at its best when David Martin is writing the villain Omega, doing full-on villain stuff. The actual plot about some ill-defined malfeasance around time and space in order to destroy the Earth and conquer the Doctor's home planet is gibberish, except when Omega is yelling about how clever he is and how he's definitely going to win this time. It's grandstanding of the highest order, and it is the most memorable element of the book. And it's very much a screenwriter's book. The dialogue is where the action fundamentally comes alive, and as I've alluded to, dialogue is not something you want to do a huge amount of in game books as a general rule. Martin has deliberately brought back some of his own creations, which is a good thing, because 
The way they talk feels very authentic. K9 in particular has that smug robotic pedantry that very much defines the character for me. The problem is that while it might be quite pleasant to read Drax and K9 bickering, it's not what you come to a game book for. This isn't the book of a man who was at all invested in the idea of writing so as to make the protagonist a central motivating factor in the story. He just wants to show you how cool the characters he came up with in the 70s are. Everything outside that is introduced in a half-baked and grudging manner. He doesn't want to allow player decisions to get in the way of telling exactly the story he wants to tell. There's so many points where it'd be really exciting to be able to make a choice and he just breezes past it with his pulp science fiction nonsense and then presents you with a choice only when he's got past the good bit. He doesn't want you to have the chance to screw up the good bit. And there's a lesson there, albeit a very simple one, which is that the more exciting the action is, the more important it is to make it so that the player is involved and in control. Martin's approach reminds me of a badly written video game where you get to fight a boss and, after a tense and close-fought encounter, you manage to beat it only for some smug NPC to appear to deliver the coup de grace and thus rob you of the satisfaction of your victory and then talk at you at enormous length about something you don't care about nearly as much as you care about going and shooting zombies or whatever. That's not to say there aren't some interesting elements on display in this book. Being free from the suffocating constraints of a 1980s children's television budget gives Martin the opportunity to throw in all manner of grandiose set pieces. I actually quite like the Bermuda Triangle bit, the three crew members of the spaceship getting eaten by ghastly space piranhas is a grisly and terrifying vignette, and this section has some of the most interactivity in the whole story. As the book continues, the sections get longer and longer and less and less focused on the viewpoint character, but there's still a few horror-influenced moments throughout the book, which is nice to see. And Martin takes the opportunity to include levels of violence that would definitely not have made it past the script editors in 1986. There's some classic Doctor Who predicaments in there as well. There's a sequence where Drax and K9 are trapped in a nuclear fusion reactor with a temperature rising. And that would have been wonderful if Martin could have brought himself to allow you to influence it in more than the most indirect way. I think it would be lovely to try and bring some of the episodic structure of classic Doctor Who to the table. One of the things I love about Doctor Who is that very pulp serial structure whereby 25-minute episodes, four to six episodes usually, and there's going to be a cliffhanger. There's going to be some peril at the end of every episode. And I think using that kind of structure as the framework for a Doctor Who story, or indeed another story in a related medium, would have been a lot of fun. And although Martin adopts a chapter-based approach, it never really has that comforting narrative flow that I associate with Doctor Who. I do quite like the cross-cutting and the jumping about in time. I think having the Doctor doing Doctor stuff to one side of the narrative is a fun idea, even if it doesn't play out well in practice. 
in a better book, this would have been a good way of ensuring that the reader got their hit of the main character without having that character dominate the action to the detriment of the adventure that the protagonist is on. It's not a technique that has been used in other adventure game books, I don't think, and for good reason, but it does raise a few intriguing possibilities. It makes me want to experiment with multiple viewpoint characters in a game book. Again, I think you want to use a light touch, and the secondary characters would need to have simple and easily graspable motivations in order to differentiate them from the viewpoint character, but I do think there's the nugget of a good idea in there. One possibility would be a race against time scenario, where you have the timing of the threat being related to the actions of a separate character that you could briefly control. Say, a commander in a castle that's under siege, you could make a few simple decisions as the commander, which would either hasten or delay the final destruction of the castle and thereby influence the main narrative. It would be a novel way of making what's often an abstract threat feel more concrete and impactful. The other approach would be to build the whole book around the gimmick from the ground up, perhaps by having a pair of contrasting characters, such as a wizard and a warrior, and cutting between them via some kind of MacGuffin. So there's some good ideas somewhere in here, but buried under layers of indifference and a book that feels like it was written very quickly with the minimum care and attention. And I suspect that's going to be an artefact of the page scale for this piece of work. Writing game books well is a time-consuming process, and I think that probably butted up hard against the amount of money actually on the table. The considerations of a professional writer trying to pay their bills are an unspoken but important influence on the quality of any creative endeavour. Once you know the mechanics of game books, I think you can knock out something that will be perfectly enjoyable pretty quickly, but that's dependent on having acquired that skill in the first place. H.P. Lovecraft never came close to making a living from his writing because he wrote slowly and meticulously and resented writing pulp tropes. His contemporary Robert E. Howard, before his suicide at the age of 30, was making a living from his pen by virtue of his ability to churn out entertaining stories in a variety of adventure genres at high speed. You see similar things with modern pulp, where the best comic writers are often juggling multiple titles simultaneously in order to bring in a decent wage. The key thing is that these writers have honed their craft in order to get to that point. Martin has not honed the craft of writing an adventure game book, and it shows. Don't hire a screenwriter to do a game designer's job is probably a good maxim. I should mention the art. It's not the strongest, although Gail Bennett does make sure that the Doctor does look recognisably like Colin Baker, which is nice. The swarm of murderfish illustration is great, and there's a smashing picture of the protagonist looking appalled at Colin Baker's smirking disembodied head. I like that one. There's some issues with technical stuff like perspective that make things look a bit misshapen and out of place, but much like the writing, I suspect the publishers got the effort that they paid for. I've looked up some of her other work, and she does seem to be very good at doing faces, but a little bit less good at doing bodies. Overall, this book was a disappointment, and not least because, as is so often the way, 
there's tantalising hints of something awesome buried under the rubble. It's a welcome reminder that game design and writing are separate, albeit related skills, and that people who can do both are actually quite rare and should be cherished. Perhaps somewhere out there, there is an actually good Doctor Who game book, but having glanced at some of the other titles in this series, I somehow doubt it. That is all for this episode. Join me next time for Fighting Fantasy Book 36, Armies of Death, a book that had an enormous impact on me as a child. Will it stand up to scrutiny, or am I about to ruin my own childhood by subjecting it to forensic analysis? Maybe it'll be both. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with me, you can do so by emailing me at hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.